This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Cassettes, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Hope you're having a uh, good Saturday so far. We got a lot to do today. I mentioned uh, with Salcedo just a couple minutes ago that uh, there's a gun regulation in California that requires all new models of guns to have a new technology. It's called micro stamping. The thing is, that technology does not exist. It does not exist. The person who invented it uh, admits, uh, yeah, we, we had an idea for it, but it's not a thing. It does, it does not exist. It's a crazy story. We'll tell in a little bit. Um, it, it's something that you can keep in your back pocket when people talk about gun control. Uh, that's how crazy gun control is in California, and, and it wouldn't stop anything. So we'll do that in a little bit. Also, um, I just got back from New York City. I was there uh, on Thursday because we did a 90-minute interview with Donald Trump. 90 minutes. We spent 90 minutes with the, with the Donald in his boardroom in, in the Trump Tower. And uh, we uh, streamed it online, and, and we have the full interviews on our Facebook page. You can check it out. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and get the 90-minute uh, the interview with Donald Trump. The only reason I was nervous about this experience was 90 minutes is a long time. And in The Art of the Deal, Donald's first book from 1987, he talks about how he rarely has a phone call over two minutes or a meeting over 15. And <laughs> I'm meeting with him for 90. Like, oh, geez. But it went fast, and, and we had a, a really good time. So you can check it out um, again on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. But first, uh, and we'll chat all about I got some behind-the-scenes stories that we'll share coming up. But we got to talk about San Bernardino first. Um, and something I'm disturbed by, not just the attack, but people's reaction to the attack. And we'll get to all of it here. Uh, just for reference sake, San Bernardino, um, east of L.A., it's about an hour and a half north, eh, maybe, maybe two hours north of San Diego. It could be six hours of traffic because it's ridiculous here, but rel- relatively close. So here's, here's, uh, here's how this happened. Um, as it was going on, as the attack was going on, we knew nothing about what was going on. But people said we need more gun control as it was happening, said it's a gun control issue. As it became very clear that this wasn't a gun control issue, it was probably a terrorist attack. The people who said it was a gun control issue backed themselves in a corner. And when you're backed into a corner, you got to fight your way out. But the card that they played was something I've never heard before. They attacked people who said... As it was happening, as the attack was happening, they attacked people who said our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and law enforcement. I've never heard that attack before. They attacked them. They attacked God. Now, now part of me, I almost can't be mad at them because they panicked, right? They didn't know what to do. But to attack prayer and to attack God and then to 
doubled down on it with the the head of the uh, uh, the headline of the New York Daily News. God isn't fixing this, and they outlined all the tweets that were sent out by Republicans um, who said thoughts and prayers. Amazing. You know, and then they compared that with the tweets from Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and and, and O'Malley who tweeted about gun control and the NRA and had blood on their hands. And the point was, look at these silly Republicans and their prayers, right? Their goofy prayers, their, their whispers to uh, the flying spaghetti monster. Meanwhile, Democrats here are all about action. And I guess my first point is, you got it backwards. Prayer is action. Blaming is not. Matt Iglesias, uh, poster child of the left, he said, other countries must have fewer mass shootings because their conservative politicians offer thoughts and prayers more vigorously. They all think they're so clever. And it was weird. It was, it was so, there's so much of this. It was, it was a coordinated effort. Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, said your thoughts, senator, this is a U.S. senator, your thoughts should be about steps to uh, stop the carnage. Your prayers should be for forgiveness if you do nothing again. So attacking thoughts and prayers, but it wasn't but in June when that same senator tweeted, my thoughts and prayers go out to the entire Charleston community. That was six months ago. Same senator issuing thoughts and prayers today, mocking people who issue thoughts and prayers. And it wasn't, what, two weeks ago? During, after the Paris attacks, there was a hashtag, pray for Paris. All across the country, pray for Paris. Today, terrorist attack in the United States, prayers don't work. And you're just as bad as a terrorist if you do, because you're not doing something worthy. You're not, doing any, you're not stopping gun control, or you're not passing gun control, so you're just as bad as the terrorist terrorist attack in France, and there were Facebook profile pictures about it. Terrorist attack in the United States, no Facebook profile pics. Terrorist attack in France, ISIS did it today in America. The guns did it. It's weird. We got a lot to, to break down here. Let me say one last thing, and then I want to go into why prayers aren't answered. I want to talk about why prayers aren't answered, and then I want to talk about why in San Bernardino... They were. And this is for all the people who say thoughts and prayers do nothing. Well, thoughts is just a whatever, but the prayers. Prayers do nothing. I want to prove that they they did. But one last thought on it in general. Perhaps saying our thoughts and prayers go to the victims, perhaps that is trite. Trite comes from the Latin word. It means worn. So they used to say if you when you wear something and a lot and it gets worn out, it's trite. So today it's not about clothing. It's when you say something so often, it loses its novelty. It loses its meaning anymore. And it's it's trite. So perhaps saying thoughts and prayers is trite, but it's also trite to criticize people for saying it. Because the truth is, in the face of a cold-blooded murder, murder murders, and in the, in the middle of it. All words are trite. But what do you do? What do you do, right? We, we're, we're so driven 
we have to say something there. Have you ever um, had to comfort someone who lost someone in their life? You've ever, ever ever had a friend who whose parents died or whose husband or wife died or whose child died or they were diagnosed with cancer or something tragic happened in their life? What do you say to them? Nothing. You don't say anything. But we, we feel uncomfortable with that because we want to be able to solve problems. We want to be able to say something. We feel the need to say something. That's true for when we're comforting a friend, and it's true when something's tragic going on in our country. We need to say something. We feel the need to say something. If only it were that easy, right? If you could just say something to make pain go away, to make the situation all better. It's not that easy. It's never that easy. It never will be that easy, and it really shouldn't be that easy. There's no cheat codes for consoling someone. But in the meantime, we've come up with thoughts and prayers as a sort of catch-all, right? It's like, there's nothing to say, but I'm going to say something because I feel like I need to, and uh, thoughts and prayers, and that's okay. That's okay. I'm more concerned with the people who attack that. I would like them to inspect their motives. Because the motives of someone who says thoughts and prayers are with you, the motive of that person is compassion and the desire to help and console. The motives of someone who's attacking someone for saying our thoughts and prayers are with you, uh, those motives seem less pure. I was talking about this on my local show the other day. We had a woman call in and said, um, Slater, I was involved with a mass shooting. I was in a room um, in in a hotel Brand new hotel, brand new carpets all over the floor. The guy came in, started shooting, and I fell to the ground. So this is about 10, 15 years ago. She says, I can still smell the new carpet smell today. And she said, Slater, I've never prayed before until that moment right then. If I may... God forbid, people criticizing those who are saying thoughts and prayers. If, God forbid, you're in a situation where you're hiding for your life, I hope God answers your prayers. Coming up next, why prayers aren't answered and why, when this attack was going on, uh, many were. We'll do that next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Um, let's go to church here for, uh, for a second. Is that all right? It's the blaze radio. I think we can do that. Right. So 
again, the, the, the during the shooting the other day, people were tweeting, our thoughts and prayers are with you, and then uh, people then criticized that, which is just so strange. Um, I've, I've never seen it before, uh, but just very, very bizarre. And a part of me kind of hopes that the left goes full tilt on bashing prayer in this next election, right, for the next year, right? Uh, just because that's a disaster. And also the hypocrisy of it all. I mean, the president's been saying our thoughts and prayers with the victims, but uh, I don't know. It's just weird. But it does beg the question, were prayers answered? And there's even a bigger question there. Why don't my prayers get answered? And here's why I want to talk about this, because to be honest, I'm less concerned about the people who mock God and mock prayer. Less concerned about them as, as much as I am concerned about the people who said my thoughts and prayers are with you. Who didn't actually pray. Does that make sense? The pe- so, so the people who say, uh, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with the victims. Okay. And then you have someone who criticizes them for saying that, oh, you idiot, you're, you're, it's a waste of time, waste of energy. You believe in fairy tales and goofy stories and some guy up floating above, blah, blah, blah. You're an idiot, all that stuff. I don't care about the person saying that as much as the person who said, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with the victims who didn't actually pray. David Jeremiah um, is a pastor at Shadow Mountain Church here in San Diego. Uh, we, I get to talk to him every uh, Friday on my local show. We get some time together. And he did a sermon about a year ago on why prayers don't get answered. And he listed a few reasons. Um, I want to go over just a couple of them here. First, because we don't pray them. (laughs) They don't get answered because we don't pray them. And he told me a story one time of a lady who came up to him and said, Dr. David Jeremiah, um, can you please pray for me on this? You know, I, I, uh, I really want this thing to happen or whatever. And he says, well, have you prayed it? And she said, no, but I was hoping you could because, you know, you're a pastor. And he said, no, 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 that's not how it works. I don't have a more direct path to the big guy. You have to pray for it. James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. It's that simple. Most prayers aren't answered because we don't really pray it. And I think that's the big one with these shootings. We say, oh, thoughts and prayers to the victims, but do we really? Second reason prayers are not answered because of unanswered sin. Psalm 66 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So for sinning, God won't listen. Third, we have unbelieving minds. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. You must believe and not doubt. Another reason prayers aren't answered, unrighteous motives. On this show, we always say good people doing good things for the right reasons. The right reasons is key. Motive is everything. Motive is everything. If you have good people doing good things for the wrong reasons, it's not going to work. God's not going to bless it. I've been there many times. I've done many things. Considering myself a good person, it's a good thing, but I've done it for the wrong reasons, and it's it just it's miserable failure. It's got to be for the right reasons. And James 4 says, um, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
So your prayer is not answered because you don't have the right motives. I forget what number one, five maybe. Prayers aren't answered because of unresolved conflict. Mark 11 says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And finally, I'll throw this one in there just because there's probably a lot of husbands listening right now. Um, prayers aren't answered because of unresponsive husbands. First Peter says, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, treat them with respect and as heirs with you of this gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Honor your wife or else your prayers will be hindered. So we flew through those. I, I only share that for those who honestly, who, who the, the people who honestly and with a pure heart and a questioning heart say, you know, how can God allow this? You know, your prayers can't possibly work. You know, look what happened. It's so terrible. Prayers clearly aren't answered. You know, the, 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 why, why even do it? And therefore, I'm going to criticize people who said thoughts and prayers because look how it doesn't work anyway. And there's some people who honestly have that opinion. It's not from a political perspective, right? Like just an honest, my prayers aren't working. So if your prayers aren't working, maybe some of those things are getting in the way. The people mocking prayer, it's fine. That used to be me, so I, I don't blame them. But if the people mocking prayer saying, you know, obviously this doesn't work. If the people mocking prayer, instead of mocking, would ask, why does it seem that prayers aren't being answered? Do you see the difference? They're like, oh, prayers are stupid. You're an idiot. Versus, man, why does it seem like your prayers aren't being answered? And then we could work through that. I think we'd all be much better off. But to that question, I would say they were. Absolutely, they were. I'm sure you heard, the, you saw the video of the um, people being escorted out of the building, mostly women in the hallway, and there was a police officer. And he said, All right, everyone, hands up. Let's get along the wall, single file. And they were filing out. And he goes, Relax, everyone, relax, relax. I'll take a bullet before you. That's for damn sure. Can you imagine the relief that that gave those women? in that hallway, I guarantee you that was an answered prayer. I guarantee you one of the people in those hallways were so shocked, scared, terrified by what was happening. They said, God, get me through this and, and comfort me and people here. And I bet there are people all around the world saying, comfort the people who are inside that building right now trying to get out. And at that moment, the police officer says, hey, hey, relax. I'll take a bullet before you. That's for damn sure. That's an answered prayer. How about the miracle that more people weren't killed or injured? You know, there were three. I heard there were three, maybe just one, but one, at least one pipe bomb inside that building that didn't go off. It's an answered prayer. How about the dad who received a text message from his daughter as she was hiding inside telling him to pray? That's a miracle. I think a miracle that the terrorists were killed. There are many more, I'm sure. Oh, how about this? The fact that not one police officer was killed. Answered prayers there, too. I don't know. I guess I just say to those who uh, criticize prayer, uh, try it. 
Try it one time. You'll feel very silly. <laughs> very, very silly. Um, but I pray that you get an answer to it. And then come back to me. And uh, we'll have this conversation again. one 3393 one Oh, and there were a lot of pictures. Uh, a lot of people praying outside of the building the other day, too. A lot of employees who worked there. Why take that away from them? Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Let's go to uh, Trinity first in South Carolina. How are you today, sir? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for taking my call, brother. Pleasure, I was just going to tell you, you hit the nail right on the head with uh, what you're speaking about, about unanswered prayers and prayers. <clears throat> because what people need to realize is, um, you know, like you said, a lot of people sit there and pray, Lord, you know, help me with this, or, you know, help me win the lottery and stuff. And those are unanswered prayers because, those are not meaningful, but, uh, you know, for you to actually pray for something like you said about no police officers killed during an incident, more people could have been killed. Um, I heard somebody talk about, I think, only 75 rounds or something like that was fired inside this building. It could have been a lot more. They could have got away from the cops and caused damage elsewhere. So all those prayers equal us. And what I was telling your screener about was this uh, newspaper in New York how it says God can't fix this. <clears throat> the way I look at it is God is fixing this. God is fixing this because what he's doing is taking from where, like Amazing Grace says, you know, once I was lost, but now I'm found. This country was lost, but now it's starting to be found, and we were blind, but now I can see because he's opening our eyes to everything that's going on and actually showing us, you know, true evil in its purest form, I believe. And now you got more and more people now who's going to cling to him and come to him and pray to him, mm-hmm. people who hasn't prayed for him for a very long time because of everything that is going on. I didn't know how you felt about it or whatever. Wow, <laughs> listen, I love, I love that last sentence there. I hope that's true. Um, the, the problem is, so I'll tell you a quick story. So, so I'm newer, newer disciple Christian, uh, about two and a half years. Um, so I would, as I was going through the process and starting to study the Bible, um, with people, I had a lot of doubts and, you know, didn't understand things. And it all seemed very silly. That's why I said a second ago, you know, if you don't pray, try it. It'll seem silly. <laughs> It'll feel very silly. And it does. Cause I remember it, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and I remember for the first time praying with my wife, who's been a Christian her whole life and it just felt so weird and all that stuff. Um, but I would listen to the radio and I heard some guy on the radio and he was making fun of Christians, right? Making fun of prayer and the you know flying spaghetti monster and all that and that was influential to me this guy has never been influential to me in any other way the person i was listening to on the radio but he was influential to me on that because i already had doubts and he just reaffirmed them do you know so that really hurt my walk in in a in a pretty profound way it didn't work obviously but 
Um, so the reason I say that is I hope I hope this helps people turn to prayer. My only discouragement is when you get things like uh, major newspapers and other influential people criticizing God and prayer. I hope it doesn't make other people turn away too. Um, so right. I think that's a call. To, I think that's a call to action to us to make sure we encourage people um, even more than maybe we would in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And another thing is a lot of people that uh, you know I talk to and stuff, and they're like. Well, I, I, how do you pray? How do you pray to God? And I always tell them, look, just sit down and have a conversation with him like you would your wife mm-hmm. or a family member or a friend. That's all he wants. Just sit down and pour your heart out. He's there to take everything from you, you know, and lift you up and be there for you. But I understand what you're saying about, you know, because it is. It's, it's us. As Christians against the world, I mean that's all there is. You know that's why you know when Jesus says, "Be the salt of the earth," you know, you turn away from worldly things. One of my favorite passages is when Paul in Acts says, "You know, he dies daily," and I think us as Christians must remember that when we humble ourselves before God, you know, before Jesus and lay our problems and lay our troubles at His feet, you know, we have to die daily of this flesh of this evil flesh and of this world, because it is. It's going to tempt us. It's going to be more and more and more. Of course, you're going to have more more things coming at you. You're going to have more people now coming out talking, you know, talking against God and everything. And I feel like me, personally, with this country heading the way it was going, was that reason, because we were turning our backs from God. Well, now he's showing us what happens if, you turn, if we start to turn our backs. Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect story. I used to tell people, if you would actually read Sodom and Gomorrah, everything that was going on, and then take Sodom and Gomorrah out of it and put America in it, it's very scary how close we are and how close we are becoming. But are he's not trying e- to stop that. Yeah, are there not even 10 righteous people in the United States of America? Um, yeah, I mean, I, you, go ahead, I'm I, sorry. I was, no, no, I was going to say, I, 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 I know there are. Um, and we have to encourage there to be more. Trinity, man, absolute home run, brother. Appreciate the call. I'm so glad you're listening. Thank you, man. Thank you for for uh, for being here. Uh, love your advice on praying, because uh, all he wants is a relationship. And, and you said one thing about being salt of the earth. Um, David Jeremiah said that salt makes people thirsty. Right? Salt, the way you live your life, um, will make people question. What do you? What's different about him? It'll, it'll make people thirsty, and people are thirsty in this country. They don't even know it. And then you got a lot of other influential forces um, telling people to find answers somewhere else as opposed to the one thing that will give you the answers. Or that is the answer. Uh, Rick, Florida. Rick, how are you, sir? Hey, good, Ma- luck following, good luck following Trinity, but I know you can. <laughs> uh, well... How much time you got? got? Got three minutes? Yeah, knock it out, man. It's all good. Uh, all right. I'm going to tell you the story in, in, in half that time of my life since, I don't know, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I was in Vicksburg, Mississippi on my knees because I had very little money. I had no one around me. I'm, I had moved, come down to Mississippi that summer to do some video work on the oil spill, and I figured I'd figure something out. Well, I was at the end of my rope. I fell to my knees and I prayed and I, I had prayed 
up, you know, during that trip. I mean, God's always with me, but he was always kind of like in the trunk of my car. I knew he was there. Anyway, I bring this talk about to shore. I ended up that winter in New Hampshire with my brother, and I, and I, I just ran by this church, drove by this church by accident. It wasn't an accident. Uh, Rabbi once said, there is no Hebrew word for coincidence. So I got involved with that church while I was there, and I loved it. That was the only reason. I mean, if I could have stayed there and I tried, I was there about four months, and it was time to go. So I was heading back to Southern California, and you and I have talked before. Remember the house show on the weekend? But, you know, we were talking about people's first homes and raising their families. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. Yes, 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 of course. Okay. Um, I was heading back to Southern California because I couldn't get arrested in New Hampshire, Philadelphia, where my dad lives is you know, Philadelphia. So I was heading, it was February, I was heading south, and I had contacted this woman uh, in Florida, and I was taking the southern route because there's snow in February in lots of the country, and I didn't want to risk that. So I was heading to Southern California, going down the East Coast, and we were talking as I was driving out of Philadelphia, and she said, you know, there's this guy who runs a soup kitchen. Actually, it's a food, it is a food kitchen, but they don't they make the food and deliver it to food places where people can get it. And I did the interview the next day and there were two more that came after that. And I was, I don't know, I was in a, somewhere in Georgia making that right turn. And she said, why don't you come down here? That was five years ago. Um, I have been doing video in town. I've done some, fantastic stuff. I mean, I was here when I first moved here. It was in Bradenton, which is north of Sarasota, where I am now. Um, awesome church. Got baptized there. They were, again, no coincidence. The pastor at the at Restoration Church in Barrington, New Hampshire, actually the previous summer had come down here, and Pastor Brian knew Pastor Dave yeah. when he passed through town. There are no coincidences. So I've been here for almost five years. And I got, and again, no coincidences, and I was praying, and I walk, I got here on a Wednesday. Thursday, I was looking for a place to work, and a guy said, you should talk to Rich at the Hub. Friday, I talked to Rich at the Hub. The next week, I was working. And all through this, I have rebuilt my spirit through the Lord and feeling confident. I've, you know, I look out my window right now, I see Sarasota Bay. What could be better? There okay. is more, because I've got, gotten complacent here. Started about a year ago. Um, the, I mean, we did. I mean, you interviewed Donald Trump. I interviewed Donald Trump. It was a lot shorter than yours, and I look forward to hearing it. Uh, I haven't yet, but I mean, I mean, if Nick, if I walked up and Nick Willenda walked by, I'd say hi, hi Nick, and he'd go, Rick. He, you know, <laughs> we've done some projects together. We've done some cool things. Uh, about a year ago, things started to change, and, and the projects they tended to be like a third. For charities, local, I mean, we did some work. I did a project for Westfield Malls uh, out of Los Angeles. You know, we did a couple things. I mean, so they were fantastic. And I got paid pretty regularly. And I lived a life where I kind of had the time to learn. This is where, talk about prayer, people have come into my life. I mean, I'm going to cry. Um, I, I, I always kind of listen to talk radio going back when I was living in New Hampshire the first time, which goes back 
seven years. But I used to love music. I have so much music from forever, and I never listen to it anymore because I need to learn things. Hmm. And over the last year, I've listened to, and if you don't mind me listing some other people's names, uh, other show hosts on the air. Well, yeah, it, no, worked, it worked. Okay, so, I mean, Glenn I've listened to since I first heard him subbing for John and Ken on KFI in Los Angeles. I said, this is interesting. Wait, Glenn Beck um, filled in for John and Ken? Oh, yeah, it was like 2003, 2004, maybe 2005. Really? Yeah. And that was the first time I ever heard of him. I think he was already- Wait, hold on. Back, had, it, had back it up, because that's, that's too weird. So the person I was talking about who was making fun of prayer was John and Ken. <laughs> Not <laughs> surprising. Wow, Not weird. Surprising. Okay. So we only got about a minute left. Sorry, John. Or Rick, it's all yours, though. We only got about a minute, though. Okay. Starting a year ago, I was really contemplating a change. And I've been thinking, I've got to do something different. I'll bring this tugboat to short. You and, and Dana and uh, Buck have all added to my life. Salcedo and even Andrew WK. If you haven't heard of him, you should. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, especially lately. Sorry, I just dropped the phone. Uh, anyway, it came to a head. I made a decision, I don't know, probably back in September. Something's got to happen. And I was trying to figure out what. Then I heard your interview with Clint. I mean, you tweeted back to me that you keep quoting it on your local show, and I don't get to hear that enough. But I'm moving to Texas. I have, I know a couple people there. I've got uh, an aunt, technically, legally an aunt. And, uh, and I'm laying the groundwork. There's some people on social media that are helping me out, friends that so I So wait, what, what moved you about Clint Bruce to move to Texas? Because so much is happening in Texas. And I'm going to, you know, mm. once I get there and get settled next year, I'm going to go see that man. I'm going to get an appointment because I have to yeah. know more about him. And I, I actually uh, tweeted that po- or emailed that podcast to a couple of people over the last two days. I mean, it's prob- I don't do that a lot, but I had to do it, Mike. Yeah. And thank you, my friend. And when, when I get to Dallas, I'll, you know, I'll email you or tweet you or something. And if you're ever in town, and I know you will be because you've got business there occasionally. I want to buy you dinner. Ah, that'd be superb. I'll I'll uh, I'll accept. <laughs> I'll accept a free dinner from you, sir. Well, Rick, it, I hate we got it, it, I hate we got to run, man. Okay. We got to hit this break here. I apologize, I'm really good to hear from you, brother. I'm so glad no that Clint Bruce interview meant something to you um, so profoundly. Um, I'm actually going to see Clint in. There's some other event I'm going to. I forget when it is. I think a couple weeks. Um, I'll pass on your message, Rick. Um, and hopefully we get an opportunity to talk to him again. Clint Bruce is a former Navy SEAL and pro football player, um, and we had him on the air, and he was uh, fantastic. All right, we got to take a break. Uh, f- uh, is it Felipe? Uh, hang on the line. We'll come back, and we'll take one last call here before the uh, top of the hour. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. I thought we were going to go to Felipe, and then Britt said, producer Britt said, well, hold on, it may be French pronunciation. I said, no. Sure enough, Philippe in California. How are you today, sir? Hey, this is Mike. It is. Hi, Mike. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I'm doing great, and uh, check it out. It's even, uh, the last name is Dutch, 
So I tell people if you put the geography together, you get Belgium, and that's there. You- <laughs> we'll t- we'll take it. So, that's funny. Yeah. We all- and, uh, I Philippe, I hate we only got about two minutes, but it's all yours. Okay, I'm gonna try and nail it real fast because I got three points here. One was uh, back on the 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 numbers game with gun violence and saying, oh, they don't have so much trouble in countries where they have all these you know ridiculous laws in Europe. And I said, well, add all those countries together and come up with 320 million people, and the numbers will come out very interesting about gun violence and violent death and all the rest. Since I can't elaborate because of the time uh, crunch, I'm going to go to the next thing. Um, On prayer, backing up to the the most recent topic, um, I have a theological background. And I want people to know that prayer is an offensive weapon, mm. not something that you run to to help, help God. And people don't know the scriptures. And one of the things that a lot of people turn to is that Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen passage about, uh, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn them from their wicked ways, and I will hear their, you know, heal their land. And in other words, people often say, hey, let's just pray to God and he'll, he'll fix it. And I say, well, notice there's four uh, things going on in that verse. Philippe, I got, I got to cut you off, brother. Hang on. Philippe, hang on if you can, man. We'll, we'll fill this up after the break. This is important. We'll finish this up with Philippe next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You are listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater, Slater's America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I don't think we're going to get to talking about Donald Trump today. Um, Thursday night, I was able to spend 90 minutes with him. Uh, we did a uh, interview in his boardroom, in Trump Towers. And uh, we recorded it, so it's on our Facebook page right now. You can check it out there. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and listen to our 90-minute discussion with uh, with the Donald. Um, and the reason we're not going to get to it is because we're going uh, so deep into this, and I'm so grateful we are. So we spent the first hour talking about the attack on prayer, uh, the attack on God in light of what happened in San Bernardino, which is about an hour and a half, two hours away from where I am right now. A, a strange reaction. I've never seen it before. I've never seen the first time an attack like this. Um, where the aftermath is a widespread, coordinated attack on the on the concept of prayer and God Himself, bizarre reaction, anger at the people who say, "Gosh, thoughts and prayers are the victims," as opposed to the anger at the people who did the killing. So after that, after we outlined that, we talked about why prayers aren't answered. I think we gave maybe six reasons why prayers aren't answered number one the number one reason is people don't actually pray and i said earlier i'm less concerned about the people who criticize those who say thoughts and prayers as much as i am the people who say thoughts and prayers but then don't actually pray and that sentence was meant to be convicting to me too so we gave maybe six reasons why prayers aren't answered and then uh, i think we gave maybe six reasons uh, examples of how prayer was answered in san bernardino no police officers were killed The pipe bombs didn't go off. 
The terrorists were killed before they did any more damage, as the FBI now says that they were planning other things. How about the fact that the police officers were doing a training exercise a mile and a half away from the building? And that's why they were able to respond in four minutes. And they were able to respond quickly. So the terrorists left earlier and they were able to know the, uh, the black SUV. So they were able to find them sooner. The whole thing. What were they doing not doing a training exercise a mile and a half away? That's crazy. Amazing how we can mock prayer and God without acknowledging the things that it and he has done. But I suppose that's been going on forever. That's nothing new. Philippe uh, has been nice enough to uh, stick around over the uh, the top of the hour. Philippe, I'm sorry we had to do that for you, brother, but we have a, a hard out there. Where are you calling from in California? I am right now in Woodland Hills. Nice. And I have a place out here, but I'm an Arizona resident. And uh, zony. I have been an, I'm an, an honorary Texan with a <laughs> there you go. from Dallas, Texas. Beautiful. So from the uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, I am so thankful for uh, your show, for what you're able to say. For First of all, thankful to God for giving us the freedom and grace, the amount of grace that he gives us to even for me to say these things right this second, here and now. Yeah, we're pretty so, lucky. His, that's, that's thanks to Glenn. Yeah. Um, his unmerited are, favor, you know, is incredible. And yes, Glenn, I have been passing out his show uh, a two-hour uh, thing called, uh, do you remember the project? I don't. Uh, okay, he did a two-hour special when he was on uh, Fox, and uh, I DVR'd it and then DVD'd it, and I pass it around to people if they want to know a little bit more about Islam, not about Muslims, but about what the global caliphate plan is, especially since 1982. And um, it's uh, and then I also have another little 35-minute documentary on the uh, called the education of uh, Mohammed Hussein, and it's all about what's going on in Dearborn and Detroit. Mm. But yep. back to prayer. Um, what's going on in this country? The inversion of thought that we have uh, that what was right is wrong, and what was wrong is right now. Yep. And what you pointed out today, um, the real problem and one of my pet peeves is that people don't have knowledge. They can talk about every subject they want to without knowledge. And uh, biblically, that is uh, a prohibition. You know, it's, first of all, it makes no common sense to any of us. Um, but people want to talk about gun violence or about God and prayer and all that, and they don't know what they're talking about. So when people tell me, oh, well, I don't believe the Bible, and I say, okay, well, what scriptures do you know? Yeah. They don't know any. So I say if you don't have knowledge, then you're not going to be able to think. And, for example, prayer, why are prayers not being heard um, when they're not being heard as opposed to being heard? Mm-hmm. Well, do people know the sequence for prayer? Do they know that, that God has a, a way to pray? And like I said, that they'll use passages incorrectly and uh, do what we call a fallacious uh, exegesis which is just a fancy term to say uh, they take things and put them together in a wrong way, come up with the wrong conclusion. Mm, So anyway, I'm throwing all that out at you just to first hear what you think of what I said and and how we can go forward to try to inform people that there is so much available to us that we're not using based on our ignorance. 
Yeah, I think that's great. Philippe, really good stuff, man. Appreciate you listening and calling and all the kind words you said. Thank you for your call. Um, well, I'll go back to the first thing I said. The um, biggest reason why prayer isn't answered is James 4. You do not have because you do not ask God. Very simple, because you're not praying. <laughs> um, so it's amazing. You know, New York Daily News says God, is, God isn't fixing this. And, well, have you asked God to fix it? Like, <laughs> have we... Have, have or have we completely turned our back on him so much and then expect him to fix it anyway? Philippe, let me try to answer your question this way. This is a long way of doing it, but I think uh, your thoughtfulness deserves a thoughtful answer. I heard a sermon from John MacArthur earlier in the year, and it was about how God restrains evil in the world. That was the question. How is evil restrained in the world? And there's four ways. First, your conscience. And we say on this show all the time that there are certain values that are written on the human heart. We were created to have them. We are born with them. We know right and wrong. We know when we're doing wrong. Something inside of us tells us that we're doing wrong. That's a conscience. Now, the thing is, the mechanism, that mechanism inside of us to control us, we do our best to not only ignore it, but to destroy it. Drugs, alcohol, whatever it takes. We twist our moral code. We pervert it. We reverse it. We lie to ourselves. We create a new morality. And MacArthur says that your conscience is a mechanism that responds to your belief system. And if your belief system is perverted, then your conscience is completely confused. It doesn't know what to do. The first restraint of evil in the world is your conscience. And if we numb it and if we ignore it, then that first restraint doesn't exist. Second restraint of evil is the family. So the conscience, your conscience is a personal restraint. Family is a relational restraint. We know that family is the building block of a stable society. Animals are, are born and, and can walk and exist on their own in minutes, just a couple minutes, right? You watch a, a baby giraffe be born. It just gets right up and starts walking. Humans are born. We can't walk for over a year. We got to be carried around. There's a reason for that. That creates relationships and bonds and love and support. Why? Because we sin and the family exists to set up barriers to restrain that evil. The family parents are there to teach righteousness and discipline in loving ways. So first restraint, conscience. Second restraint of, of evil spreading in a society is a strong, stable family. Third restraint, culture. The society, society, other people. And when our culture permits evil and celebrates what's wrong and legitimizes it, then we've eliminated another restraint on evil spreading. And I'm just going to share this one just because it happens to be in the news. Um, but I read these articles on Drudge, if you've been following Drudge this week. Uh, they'll have these articles about the most famous uh, uh, male adult movie guy. James Dean, is that his name? James Dean. And these stories about how he's raped multiple women. And now more and more women are coming out. It's like a Cosby kind of thing. One woman came out and now a bunch of others are coming out. And it's like, yeah, shocking, right? And, and culture, mass culture, has celebrated this guy because he's handsome. And we've lifted him up, and he's, he's like broken into mainstream. right? He's gone from adult star to mainstream star, movie star. 
And that's just, I mean, that's an example. I'm not saying this causes terrorism. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not comparing those two things. But it's just another example of eliminating restraint on evil with society by legitimizing things. There's a million examples of this. Just, this just happens to be uh, in the news this week. So culture. And finally, the church. Spiritual restraint. So those are the four restraints on evil. How are we doing on those? Doing good? So we can ask this about society at large, but we can ask about our country, but let me, let me ask it specifically because we're all friends here. How are you at being in tune with listening to your conscience? Not, not how's, how's our America? How are you? How are you at that right now? And it's okay. To, I mean, ups, downs, it's all good. But how are you right now at that? How are we doing with our families? How are you doing with your family? Remember that one of the reasons that God doesn't listen to prayer, doesn't answer prayer is because you have an unresolved conflict. It's right there in the scripture. How are you doing with your family? How are we doing with our culture? What you're letting in, what, what you're supporting, what part of the culture you're supporting, how you're encouraging that. And then, of course, you can assess the church. But I don't know. I think, I think it's clear that when these four things erode, what do you think is going to happen? You know, people are saying, you know, the New York, again, the New York Daily News headline is God isn't fixing this. They're telling people to turn away from God. Right? They're saying, turn away from him. He won't fix this. And my point is, we've already turned away from God. That's why it's not fixed. <laughs> right? Now, we have our responsibilities, too, of course. But I would argue that God did have a role in, in what happened the other day and every single day with this topic. Who knows how many lives were saved the other day? Who knows how many plots were stopped for the most random possible reasons? that God can be the only answer for. I'm not going to pretend to fathom his ways. My point is we live in an evil world and there are restraints to such evil and we turn down all four of those fences. We tear them down. And then we wonder why, (laughs) why it's running rampant. Why do you think? 1-888-900-3393. I hope that's kind of an answer, Philippe. Why does the left hate this? I don't want to say the left. Why do so many people, you know, deny this, reject this, whatever? Um, I want to talk about something called theodicy. It's a new term. I've never, or not new for me. Um, I never heard of it until recently. Molly Hemingway brought it up in an article. I think she's spot on. It's theodicy of government. Theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, to be honest. Should get our seminary guy back on. I think it's theodicy. The question is, theodicy is the study of basically why do good, why do bad things happen to good people? But what is theodicy of government? We'll explain next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So, why were people attacking prayer in the aftermath of what happened in San Bernardino? Um, well, on the surface, it's because a lot of those people who were doing that initially said this is a gun control issue as it was still going on. And then as we learned more, and it clearly wasn't, they backed themselves into a corner, 
they needed to get out. So they're like, ah, I'm going to attack you because you prayed or what? I mean, like, so they're just like a rabid dog just trying to get out of the corner. Um, and that's the best attack they could come out with. But I think I want to go deeper than that because why would they even come up with that? Like, where did that come from? So there's something called theodicy. Uh, I never heard of it until Molly Hemingway just the other day wrote about it. And I think she's spot on. So theo, uh, God, right? Like theocracy um, or theology. Uh, but the dicy, D-I-C-Y, comes from the Greek word meaning justice. So God and justice, and it's the study of basically why do bad things happen to good people, which is a debate that's been going on since the beginning of time. But many progressives in America ask a different question, not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do bad things happen to good government? So the theodicy of government is when people rush to defend the government after a tragedy, remember a few months ago, there was an Amtrak train derailment. Immediately, progressives blamed budget cuts, but not even budget cuts from the last couple of years. They blamed future potential budget cuts. So funding was going to go from $1.4 billion to $1.1 billion next year. <laughs> and, like... They're say, they were saying that that caused the train derailment, even though now we know it's because the guy, the operator was speeding too fast around a corner. But they blamed future potential budget cuts for the train derailment. It's crazy. So when, when people feel helpless after a tragedy, most turn to God. Many question God. But now we have more and more people turning to government. And because government is omnipotent, and all-knowing and perfect, these people must defend it at all costs. So let's just take this shooting right here. Uh, you know, a shooting happened, not a terrorist attack, a shooting. So the first thing they do is, well, why did a bad thing happen to good government? Right? We have a good government. Government is good, but a bad thing happened. Why? Oh, it's because the Republicans are in the way. The Republicans are preventing the rule of a perfect federal government existence over our great land. The gracious gods of D.C., they wish to wrap, wrap us in their loving arms, but we sin. Conservatives turn against this all-loving, all-protecting force in D.C. And because of that, evil is allowed to reign and bad things happen to good government. If only Republicans would get out of the way, then good government would, would bless us with his uh, with its uh, with its blessings, with its with its gracious love, <laughs> and that's what it is. Anything bad that happens, it's the fault of the people who didn't let government control everything. If there's a shooting, it's not the brokenness of people, as we were just talking about. You know, the four ways to constrain evil in a society, in, uh, in in the world: our conscience, family, culture, church. I think when something bad happens, it can be traced back to some breakdown of one of those or all of those constraints on evil. But the left, when something bad happens, they think it's a brokenness of government. But there's no such thing as a brokenness of government because the government is perfect and can do no wrong. So there must be someone, something in the way of government enacting its perfect grace on us. Does that make sense?
So we believe that to prevent bad things from happening, we need to restore our moral code. That's our conscience. We need to restore our families. We got to get culture back in line and we got to strengthen private institutions and churches across the country. Amen to all those, right? That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Restore our moral code, build our families back up, get culture back in line, and strengthen private charities and churches. None of those have anything to do with government. But the left thinks that you need to get out of the way and stop interfering with the government, solving everything in their infinite wisdom. And if you're in the way, then you're just as guilty as the people who did the evil thing. Because if you would just get out of the way, government would have prevented it. Now, the good book says, put not your trust in princes. But that's exactly what so many people do. They put their trust in princes, presidents, laws, and regulations. We can just regulate evil out of the world. And we mentioned with Salcedo earlier, uh, you know, they, they say uh, these guns were uh, purchased legally. You hear that all the time. But they never say by whom. <laughs> they never say who purchased them legally. Well, two of the guns were straw purchases, which is illegal. But our gods in D.C., our golden calves in D.C., they, they have no answer to that. That's why no one ever says who purchased them. They just say they were legally purchased. Uh, we got to run, but once you th- once you think a little more about this concept of theodicy, why does bad thing happen to good government? Um, it makes sense why after every bad thing that happens, they turn to their all-powerful government for assurance and then attack anyone else that might get in its way. Interesting. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And you can watch our 90-minute Donald Trump interview from the other day on our Facebook page as well. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater interesting headline on huffington post right now is what drove her and there's a picture of the uh the wife um father became more hardline after moved to saudi arabia interesting so i just wonder what that's going to do for um women refugees remember the whole thing was oh it's women and children I wonder how that's going to change that uh, that talking point. Interesting. Um, I want to talk for a second here about. I really don't think maybe maybe I'll end the show with a segment on Donald Trump because we got to talk with Donald Trump for ninety minutes on Thursday night, um, which was <laughs> which was interesting. And the, the whole ninety minutes it's on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and you can watch it there. But ninety minutes, geez, that was. They told me ninety minutes. Like wow, all right, let's uh, get a lot in ninety minutes, and we did. It was a lot of fun. Um, so maybe we can tell some, I'll do some behind the scenes stories on that a little later, but I want to talk about the chilling effect. Cause I think we have another example of it here. And, um, with Loretta Lynch, the attorney general saying that we're going to, she's going to prosecute people. Um, what was the line? You're going to prosecute people who, I don't even like, I forget the exact word, like speak out against Muslims or something like that. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> what, what does that mean? So we're going to have another chilling effect we talked about it first with ferguson i believe and i said that um all the ferguson protests and other you know similar protests across the country 
is going to have a chilling effect on police work. Because if these people make up these claims of institutionalized racism on everything, you know, even when there's, there's nothing to do with race, and they keep doing that, the police are going to be afraid to move. They're going to be paralyzed with fear, and they're not going to want to do anything ever lest they be accused of being racist. And that was when Ferguson first started, and then a couple months later, it looks like uh, Baltimore. In Baltimore, um, crime has gone up. And, and they blame that on the chilling effect. Police don't want to do their job because they may get uh, crucified for it. The chilling effect, I think the most egregious example of it, before I get to today's, I think the most egregious example is Rotherham, England. And we've mentioned this a few times before. Um, it's a city, I guess the closest city would be Manchester, so it's a, you know, in the, right in the middle of, uh, of uh, England. Um, and this was a state report done f- uh, from 1997 to 2013, and it tracked over 1,400 kids who were sexually abused. It was a sex trafficking ring of children. And everyone in the city knew about it. Social workers knew about it. Police knew about it. Local politicians knew about it. They did nothing about it. These kids are raped by multiple people, trafficked into other towns, boys and girls as young as 11. So how could this have happened? Over such a long period of time, this wasn't a year or two, 16 years. How could this be allowed? And no one do anything. And it's because the men involved who are running it were Pakistani. So this is the state report. Now, I'm not, this isn't, uh, you know, some right-wing talk show host's interpretation of what happened. This is the official report on these 16 years. It says several staff described their nervousness about identifying the ethnic origin of the perpetrators for fear of being thought racist. Others remembered clear direction from their managers not to do so. Could you imagine what that would sound like? What does that sound like? So let's say you're a police officer and it's, um, hey, chief, uh, I think I got this case here about these kids who are being uh, sex trafficked in our town. And you get a clear direction from the chief not to do anything about it because the men are Pakistani. That's it. And you don't want to be accused of being racist. So officers were told and officials were told to not pursue it. Do not investigate. Do not arrest anyone. So we're just going to turn a blind eye and let 1,400 kids be sexually abused right in our town because of political correctness. We see it in our schools. Um, It's called, um, what's it called? Uh, Restorative justice in our schools. Ask me, see if your kids, if your school uh, has restorative justice. This is worth a phone call to administrators. See if they uh, uh, follow a restorative justice approach. The concept, the whole idea is that um, minority students are disciplined more often than white students. And there's a bunch of different things that come from that. But the big one is um, black and minority students have a different, how do I say it? Like a different recourse for discipline and in many cases aren't disciplined. And teachers are afraid to discipline minority kids because they're going to be accused of being racist and and messing up the equilibrium now that a, the exact same number of white kids and minority kids have to be disciplined at the ratio. that I mean, it's a crazy. It's crazy. So teachers are just letting kids go wild in school because they don't want to be accused of being racist. And we told the story before, and we had some teachers call into the show who say they have uh, they call roamers in high school who just come to school, 
They go for the free food and the Wi-Fi, hang out all day, and the school allows it because they get money for every kid who shows up. They never go to any of the classes. They may go into a class, bust down the door to start a fight with someone or the teacher inside. So teachers have to lock the doors, and they can't do anything about it. They don't want to criticize because they don't want to be accused of being racist. That's a chilling effect, and it affects everyone else who's trying to do the right thing. I bring this up because there was an article on a uh, CBS LA website, the CBS LA website. And the headline was pretty nondescript. Uh, it said, Authorities search Redland's home tied to suspect Saeed Farouk. Okay, so like, okay, whatever. It's an article about, you know, latest with what's going on. The very last sentence, way at the end. I'm not exaggerating. The last sentence. There's nothing past this sentence. The very last sentence says, a man who has been working in the area said he noticed a half a dozen Middle Eastern men in the area in recent weeks, but decided not to report anything since he did not wish to racially profile those people. You know, it was a week ago, there was this shooting at Planned Parenthood two weeks ago. And uh, people say that pro-lifers, the rhetoric of pro-lifers caused this guy to go kill people at a Planned Parenthood clinic. Now, obviously, I think that's wrong, but let's just say that's true. If that's true, there also has to be something to be said for rhetoric. If rhetoric changes people's behavior, okay, let's, okay. And if rhetoric caused that guy to go shoot people at Planned Parenthood, which I don't think it did, but let's just go with it. Then if that's true, then there also has to be something to be said for rhetoric that terrifies people so much that they're afraid to report strange behavior. Because if they do report it, they're going to be accused of being a racist. So they'd rather not do anything, even though it may have saved the lives of 17 people. Chilling effect. No one talks about it. You know, they'll say, uh, you know, the head of the NRA has blood on his hands for this type of stuff. I, I never liked that. It has blood on their hands. I mean, I don't think that's a ridiculous thing to say for anyone. But if that were true, wouldn't it also be true that the people who contribute to an environment that create that has a chilling effect on people, wouldn't they have blood on their hands too? I hate that sentence. I'm not even going to go there, but... Doesn't that go both ways or no? one 888 By the way, where are those Middle Eastern men now? If, if this guy saw a lot of Middle Eastern men going in and out of that house, where are they now? I, I saw uh, something on The Blaze just a minute ago. I didn't read the whole thing, but it was about um, there was a, some former FBI director. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick. Former FBI director. Oh, so I, I didn't even see this, but... Uh, I guess the landlord opened up the house, the guy's house, and all these reporters just busted in and started taking video and pictures of everything. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I was, I've never seen such a thing. How is that even possible? So they had this FBI director. Here it is. Um, oh, he's a retired New York City police detective, Harry Hook. Um, and he said he was watching the video of the reporters busting through the door and taking videos of everything. everything. And he said, I'm baffled. He said, I'm baffled. This is part of the crime scene because this is where they lived. And the first thing I noticed when I looked at this was the apartment was not dusted for prints. 
How do I know that? Because I don't see fingerprint dust all over the place. And he says, this is a problem because what about the co-conspirators that may have been in the apartment at any time, similar to the ones that uh, this guy was said he, uh, he saw in and out of the house. Anyway, the point is, keep in mind a chilling effect, and um, I think we're going to see more deaths as a, uh, as a result of it, unfortunately. Coming up next, we'll do one last story on this. I want to talk about the uh, gun laws here in California, and uh, I alluded to this earlier. There is a gun law in California that requires all new guns, new gun models, to have a certain technology in it. The thing is, that technology doesn't exist. You heard that right. What I just said sounds crazy. That doesn't even make any sense. What do you mean? All new gun models in California have to have a certain technology called micro-stamping, and micro-stamping doesn't exist. So the regulations are so absurd in California, all new gun models have to have something in it that doesn't exist. But they still think that they can stop these things from happening with just another law. It's craziness. one 888 I'll tell the full story of that. Uh, Schwarzenegger's involved. We'll tell the full story next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So, try to uh, share this story here. Because it won't make any sense when, uh, no matter how clearly I tell it, it doesn't, it won't make any sense. So this is how politicians in California in particular just trip over themselves to be seen as people who do something when it comes to gun control. I have to do something. Even if that thing, I don't even want to say even if it makes no sense, because that's one thing. I want to do something even if it's impossible. Here's what I mean. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor of California, just it's the weirdest thing. I don't even. So I was talking to Trump yesterday. So I guess Schwarzenegger has taken over Trump's job as the apprentice. And and Trump goes, hey, Mike, do you like Schwarzenegger? You know, he's like, oh, Schwarzenegger's going to do a great job taking over my show, and I hope he does great because I still own it. We're going to make a lot of money. It's going to be really successful. Hey, Mike, do you like Schwarzenegger? I said, no. <laughs> I think he's terrible. And he's like, oh, that's right. He was governor. You, you know, He wasn't a great governor. <laughs> I was like, yeah, terrible governor. I have, you, you can have a Schwarzenegger from kindergarten cop. I like that. Schwarzenegger governor, uh, the, the worst. Anyway. Uh, he passed a law when he was governor that said all new gun models in California have to be approved by the state. Okay? So you come up with a new gun model, um, an updated version of a gun, in any way, even cosmetic differences. So even if the gun is a new color, that new gun has to get approved by the state. That's law number one. Law number two, no new gun will be approved unless it has what is called micro-stamping. So micro-stamping is every bullet that's fired from a gun, a laser etches into the shell a number. So the idea is that police can recover the shell and then track the gun and connect it with the gun that it was fired from. 
Now, that alone doesn't make any sense because if I was at a crime scene, I could just throw some old shells from the firing range, uh, right, and then it connects to a different gun. Or if I stole a gun, the police would trace the shells back to the original gun owner. I mean, so the whole thing doesn't even make any sense anyway. But the most important thing is micro-stamping doesn't exist. There's no such thing as micro-stamping. And the scientist who came up with the concept for it, he admits that it's impossible. It can't be done. You cannot. Just imagine this. Fire a gun. <laughs> you put, From the time that you pull a trigger, the explosion inside the gun, and then the bullet's gone. Like that amount of time, have a laser etch a number into the shell? That's crazy it can't be done but in order for a new gun model to be sold in california that has to happen even though it can't happen now you may be saying well that's ridiculous but whatever let's i mean just sell all the other guns that have already been approved are approved okay this is just for new gun models but the problem is let's say a gun manufacturer comes out with a safer gun how, let's say it's more reliable. Let's say the gun is more durable. Let's say the gun's less expensive or more advanced in any number of ways. The gun manufacturer can't sell it in California because the new gun also doesn't have a technology because the technology doesn't exist. It doesn't have micro-stamping because it doesn't exist. So this law passed by Schwarzenegger forces California gun stores to sell less refined and less safe firearms than the firearms that are actually available everyone else in the country so there you have it keep that story in your back pocket for when someone says we need more gun control uh you can say well california is the strictest gun control in the country well but but and then you can tell the story yeah new gun models have to have a technology that doesn't even exist and the end result of that is there's more reliable more durable safer guns out there that aren't allowed to be sold because it also doesn't have this uh made up technology in it crazy 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 Slater Radio on uh, Twitter, 1888-933-93. We got one hour left. Son of a gun. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, climate change. So our governor in California, our current governor, Jerry Brown, he left on Wednesday. The terrorist attack was on Wednesday, was it? He left on Wednesday to go to Paris to wrap up the climate change uh, uh, talks. What? You're the chief executive of our state, and you're going to leave to uh, to Paris to talk about climate change? Amazing, these people. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Um, so we spent the first two hours talking about uh, prayer, uh, but but really what happened in San Bernardino, it's about an hour and a half, two miles north of uh, where I am right now, but it will, um, who knows where it's going to happen next, but it most certainly will. What was reports yesterday? What, five five people were caught at the border somewhere in Arizona? Uh, like four Pakistani men or something. It's like, what? Why are Pakistanis getting through? Like the, um, but I want to change the topic here for, uh, for, uh, for the last hour, if you don't mind. Um, and I want to talk about 
I want to get to climate change, but before we do that, I want to talk about metrics, metrics for success. Metrics for success. So I used to have a metric of success um, for this show, or not this show, more of my local show, because this show we don't have ratings. I don't. I mean, because I, I, we're not on the radio, on the Blaze Radio Network, it's internet radio only. But for regular radio, it's your ratings. What are your ratings? Now, that's a broken metric because the system for figuring out ratings is ridiculous. We don't have to go into it now. It's a broken system. Um, but let's say, let's say it wasn't. Or let's say it worked. Let's say I had the most listeners of anyone in the country. Who cares? And I think Glenn's been thinking a lot about this. You know, I used to listen to Glenn back in the day when he would say uh, he'd intro with the third most listened to show in all of America. And he would and sometimes he would follow that up with that's great because you don't want to be number one because you got a target on your back. And you don't want to be number two because you're gunning for number one. But if you're number three, you can just sort of slide right in there and you can be a nice, comfortable third. <laughs> no, no one's gunning for you. You're nice and uh, you just hang out there with the bronze medal in third place. I don't I, I guarantee you. I've never talked to Glenn about this, but I but I can still guarantee you that if Glenn could choose between having the third most listened to radio show in the country and telling the truth and changing lives in a positive way versus having the number one show and spreading, I don't want to say lies, but, but just what is false, he would choose number three. If there were 10 million people listening right now, but I was saying things that are wrong or false or things that are destructive to your life or others. What good is that? So a metric for success can't possibly be only how many people are listening. That's incomplete. So I have other metrics for success as well. This, this hit me my first year in college, or my first year in radio. I was in Jackson, Tennessee. My first radio job, I did mornings in Jackson. Uh, it's about an hour and a half east of Memphis. So I did five to eight in the morning. And they didn't have a morning show when I came. It was right out of college. Um, and they didn't have a morning show. And they took a chance on a kid right out of college who had no experience at all. It was just me. I worked the board and answered the phone and talked all at the same time. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea if anyone was listening. No, So I was the show was from five to eight. No one got to the building until seven. So for the first two hours of the show, it was pitch black. Right? The building was dark. And I was the only one in the parking lot and the only one inside. And I had no idea. I had no idea if anyone was listening. And then one day, someone called into the show. And I, Oh, one, one background point. So in Tennessee, we were Slater Raiders. Our listeners were called Slater Raiders. We moved it to Slater Crusaders because when I moved to San Diego, there's no one more hated than the Raiders the Oakland Raiders. So we couldn't be Slater Raiders, so we changed it to Slater Crusaders. But in Tennessee, we also had Slater Haters, and the kiddos who listened were called Slater Taters. And we had T-shirts for Slater Taters and everything. It was a little cartoon potato. This cute little cartoon potato. It was awesome. Slater Taters. And we did the morning show, and we had kids calling every once in a while. It was a lot of fun. So one day this guy calls in, and he says, Slater, I'm on the way to the hospital right now. My wife is there. I had to call you. And I was thinking, like, like, whoa, what's going on? What are you doing? And he said, my wife is there at the hospital. I'm going to be a father. 
We have our first Slater Tater on the way. It was awesome. It was an awesome moment. And and I that's when it first hit me. I was driving home after the show and I said, wow, there's something really powerful about this radio thing. There's nothing like it. It's so personal. Uh, lasting relationships are made on the radio way more than, um, than TV or anywhere else. So that to me was my first sign that, you know, ratings aren't the most important thing. There has to be other metrics of success. My wife's about to start a blog, her own blog. So the other day we were talking about metrics of, metrics of success. It can't be number of likes, number of followers, ad revenue. It can't be. It's got to be something more real than that. It's got to be something more meaningful. So the producer of my local show in San Diego, um, he started making these little uh, YouTube videos, these mini films on YouTube. And we talked in the beginning. We said views don't matter. Views don't matter. Now he made one video that has 700,000 views. It's awesome. But the most recent video he made has 30,000 views. So which video is better? The one with 30,000. Why? Because the one about thir- with 30,000 got the attention of the Make-A-Wish Foundation based on the topic of the video. And we're working to make a wish happen for a local high schooler here who has inoperable brain cancer. So making that video, sure, it has 30,000 views. But look what's going to come out of that. Like That is meaningful. I know I would, and I know he would rather have that experience than have that video have 10 million hits or another video of 10 million hits. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, William Carey. He was a uh, pastor. When was he a pastor? I want to say late 1800s. Sorry, let me look this up. Um, No, sorry, late 1700s. And he said, my greatest fear is not failing. My greatest fear is failing, excuse me, my greatest fear is succeeding at something that doesn't matter. My greatest fear isn't failing. It's succeeding at something that doesn't matter. So in order to do that, we have to have proper metrics for success. So why do I bring this up? Professor Judith Curry. She is one of the top climate scientists in the world. But she was not invited to the big Paris conference this last week about climate change. Why? Because she's been labeled as a heretic. She is anti-science. Now, no one has produced more peer-reviewed articles on the topic of climate change than her. But still, she's anti-science from her colleagues, many of her colleagues. Why? Does she not believe in global warming? No, she does. She she believes that human-generated carbon dioxide warms the planet. She believes that. But she thinks that the warming effect is much slower than the alarmists fear. And her proof isn't, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, that of a, a talk radio host from Jackson, Tennessee. She's using the top science available. And she's using the UN climate change panel's own science. I don't want to go too much in the details here, but so... And to the, uh, let me just throw this out here real quick. So in 2013, excuse me, 2007, the United Nations said that if carbon levels double, then the temperature of the planet's going to go up by two degrees. Now, the assumption is that that would be a bad thing, which is also debatable whether or not that's a bad thing. I, th- I think the headline of Huffington Post the other day was two, gosh, what was it? Two devastating degrees. 
So you may have heard about two degrees a lot this last week. Two degrees, two devastating degrees. Now, again, some are arguing whether or not that'd be a good thing if the temperature of the Earth went up by an average of two degrees, but we'll save that for another day. So the UN said that if carbon levels double, then the temperature of the planet's going to go up by two degrees. That was in 2007. But then in 2013, the same UN scientists said, well, two degrees is a little too specific. There's no way we can be that certain about a two-degree increase. So they changed their estimate. You know what the UN's new estimate is on what the temperature will change by if the CO2 levels double? This is 100 years, by the way. CO2 levels double. You know what they say the, the new temperature will change by now? Not two degrees, but anywhere between negative 1.5 degrees and 4.5 degrees. So the UN says if CO2 levels double, then there's a chance that the temperature will go down or stay the same or go up. But they have no idea. No idea. And that's all that this one scientist is, is saying. She's saying, listen, I think it'll go up and I think it'll go up by a, a pretty good amount, but it'll take a long time. And, and and it's really not even that big of a deal. In the, and, and for that, she's um, anti-science. And she also says there's a lot of science left to be done on what she believes is an upcoming grand solar minimum, which is a funny term for that, but grand solar minimum, which is a reduction of solar output, which would lead to a, a spell of global cooling far more dramatic than any global warming that we could create, right? So we would need more global warming if this indeed does happen if the sun stops putting off um, as much output as it has even for a short period of time that's way more dangerous and uh, i don't know what you do about that but anyway i bring this all up because of this quote i came across from uh, the professor here she says i started saying that scientists should be more accountable and i began to engage with skeptic bloggers i thought that that would calm the waters instead i was tossed out of the tribe there's no way i would have done this if i hadn't been tenured and if it wasn't fairly near the end of my career, if I were seeking a new job in the U.S. Academy, I'd be pretty much unemployable. Unemployable as a scientist. I can still publish in my peer-reviewed journals, but there's no way I could get a government research grant to do the research I want to do. Since then, I've stopped judging my career by these metrics. I'm doing what I do to stand up for science and to do the right thing. Her metric of success has changed. It's no longer, well, I got to see how many peer-reviewed articles I can write, which many scientists use as their metric for success. It's no longer, oh, I got to get as much grant money as possible, which is driving a lot of the conclusions of climate science, right? I got to get more money. And her metric for success isn't even, well, I, I, I have to be invited to speak at a UN conference in front of world leaders. Those are, I mean, a lot of people, those would be their metrics. Scientists would say, well, I got to get peer-reviewed articles. I got to get a lot of grant money, and I got to go speak at conferences for the United Nations. Those are pretty good metrics of success, right? No. Because you can do all three of those things and still not be looking for the truth and still not be talking about the truth and still not ever find the truth. You can, get, you can write peer-reviewed articles, get grant money, and speak at UN conferences and still be doing the wrong thing. You can be trying to please people and please your ego, please your bank account, and still not be doing the right thing. Isn't that interesting? So this conference this last week, and I guess it's still going on, there's a lot of people there who 
some genuinely believe that they're right, and that's good. That's fine. Many of them just have the wrong metric for success. And they're driven by that. So I have to ask you, what's your metric for success in your career? How do you know you're doing a good job? How do you really know you're doing a good job? And I guarantee you, if you change your metric of success, um, you'll be a lot happier. So my one of my so like my wife, she wants to start this blog. We were talking about it, and it's not well. I got to get this many likes. It's wow. Wouldn't it be great if you got an email one day? from a woman who said oh man I, I, this was really on my heart what you wrote about and I was really depressed about it but you made me look at it a different way and now I'm so much happier because of it isn't that worth way more than a, than a million views on something let's change our metrics for success one 933 if you want to send me on twitter your metric for success I'd love to hear some Slater Radio on twitter maybe some metrics for success of parenting What's a metric of success you have for parenting? Slater Radio on Twitter. I'd love to hear some answers. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Clip here. This is from the UN conference in France the other day. Clip Trey. So what we want to highlight here is that um, climate change Excuse is me. a clear symptom of an inequal and unjust world. So if we if we are to address the climate crisis, we need to challenge the structural causes of of the crisis, which lies on unequal distribution of of wealth, of carbon and of power, whether it's political power, economic power, or even military power. All right, so we have to challenge the structural causes of climate change, which is unequal distribution of wealth. So that, uh, they're going to slip uh, a couple times in this last week and next couple days, however long this is going on, um, about what this is really about. So climate change is really a global wealth redistribution scheme, and we can prove that many different ways. Uh, the UN has terms called climate finance. Uh, there's a term called ecological debt which is basically reparations that the first world has to pay the third world. Uh, they're talking about $100 billion of payments from the first world to the developing world, uh, which almost doubles the amount that the UN currently gives the developing world. So that's what this is all about. It's just global wealth redistribution. But I want to take a second here and, and give an example of something that I mention generally often. Um, the Paris Conference's goal and all the President Obama and all the rest. Their goal is to change the temperature of the planet to this made-up ideal temperature. Whatever it's like a ran- whatever temperature they determine is the ideal temperature. That's what they they want to change the temperature of the planet and dial it into that. My belief is that the planet has always been changing. I mean, the continents used to be connected for the love of Pete. Okay, so knowing that the Earth has always been changing, our job is to better prepare for those changes so we can survive which is basically what we've been doing since the dawn of man. We've moved from caves to houses, right? We learn how to make clean water. We, we make sewer systems. We, we've invented medicines, eradicated diseases. You go on forever. 
We always have tried to improve our lives so that we can withstand planetary changes. But now we've become so arrogant that we believe we can change the planet. So here, does that make sense? Like, I, I'd much rather focus on how we can adapt rather than having the arrogance to believe that we can change the temperature of the planet and dial it into this made-up ideal temperature. So let me give you an example. Coral reefs. So coral reefs around the world are vitally important. They uh, protect the coastlines from waves. Um, they're uh, a source of nutrients for the smallest fishes, which are the base of the food chain. It's something like reefs make up 1% of the ocean floor and 95% of the biodiversity in the ocean. Don't quote me on that, but it's something big like that. So reefs are incredibly important to our ocean and to our world, and they're dying. And the argument is that the water is getting warmer, and the reefs um, are what they call bleaching. So this is when the organisms on the reef die. The reefs go from like a brown or a green to white. So it looks like they're being bleached. Now, scientists have looked at this and said, oh, my gosh, this is a disaster. The water is getting warmer. The reefs are dying. The fish are dying. We have to stop driving cars so that the planet, uh, the temperature of the planet goes back to what it should so that the reefs can survive. But there's one scientist in Hawaii who says, well, hold on. What if instead of that, what if we strengthened the reefs? So I have two minutes to describe this. This is what she did. She went and uh, she took a piece of the reef that was um, still alive. Because she'd look at these reefs and part of them were dead, but part of them was still alive. So she'd take out a piece that was still alive. And it turns out that these parts, some of the parts were stronger than others. So what she did is she took the part of the reef that was still alive, put it in even warmer water, and it started to die. So she took it out and put it back in normal water, normal temperature water. Then she put it back in the warmer water and it would still live. She basically made the organism stronger then put them back in the ocean and the stronger organisms who were better able to withstand warmer temperatures spread. She made the reefs stronger. Basically selective breeding for coral reefs. So does that make sense? I mean, this is just one example of instead of trying to change the planet back to this made up ideal, why don't we come up with creative ways to better survive an always changing planet. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hello, Slater Crusaders. Um, Let's see here. What can we do? Should we tell this story? Hmm. Yeah, might as well. Um, So last weekend, was that Thanksgiving? Was Thanksgiving last weekend? No. What? Wow, no kidding. So, um... I, I uh, Friday, last Friday, I uh, didn't do anything. I was kind of sick, 
but I, w- I could I could read. So I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's um, uh, what's the name of the book? Uh, Outliers. It was awesome. And he answers questions like, "Why are Asians good at math?" And why in the 80s did Korean Air have a bunch of plane crashes, even though their planes were fine and the quality of their pilots were top notch and what was going on? And it was their culture. That was the reason why. This is the book where the 10,000 hour rule came from, which says if you practice something for 10,000 hours, um, that's when you become uh, a master at that thing, whatever it is. And it told the story. I mean, told the story of Bill Gates and um, also the Beatles. So the Beatles, real quick, not to get off topic, but before the Beatles came to America, they were together for seven years. And in 1960, they were a struggling high school rock band. But they were invited to play in Hamburg, Germany. And this is what really made their career. And the reason why Hamburg was so special is because they played in a lot of strip clubs. And you think, wait, hold on. What? The reason strip clubs were better than performing at, a, at any other club is because at like a bar, you would play an hour set. But at the strip clubs in Hamburg, you would play for eight hours a night. You seven nights a week, eight hours a night. And John Lennon said that because they would play in Germany, they uh, first of all, because it was Germany, they had to play better. They had to put, put their hearts into every song in order to win people over as opposed to playing in um, you know, Liverpool. Um, but also they had to play so long every night they had to come up with a whole bunch of new songs. They had to learn a bunch of new songs. They had to learn new styles, right? They would practice more jazz music to fill the time and all this stuff. And they would just practice more. Eight hours a night they'd play. So by 1964, when they came to America, they've already played 1,200 gigs, which is an unprecedented amount for, for anyone's career, let alone before you hit it big. So they got their 10,000 hours in in uh, a very short amount of time. So anyway, really great book. Uh, but I bring it up because there is a whole chapter about the difference between Southerners and Yankees. And I think it's really fascinating, and I think it has relevance to today's immigration situation. So here's the backstory. My wife is from Tennessee, born and raised in Chattanooga. So Stefan, her brother, and I were out for dinner the other day, and he brought up a story where someone in high school there, he's two years older. Someone in high school called Stephanie a name and her brother got in a fight with him and they laughed about it. And you know, well, where's, what's he doing now? Oh, he's doing this, blah, blah, blah. Then he told a story of another time he got in a fight with a guy because he was flirting with Steph. And then he told another story of a time he got in a fight with a guy because someone said something about her uh, during a basketball practice. Or something. Now I'm hearing like story after story after story, and I'm thinking, and you're probably thinking right now, like, how is it? Why does this guy keep getting in so many fights? He's out of control. No. He grew up in Tennessee. More specifically, he grew up in an honor culture. And that's what the South has it's an honor culture. That's how it works in the South. So there's a couple studies on this. And uh, this is one of my favorites. They did this at the University of Michigan. They took 100 people, half of them raised in the South, half of them from the North. And they told them to take this test. Now, the test, it was like a, you know, a quiz, basically. The quiz wasn't really the study. That's not, that wasn't really what was going on. It was just a decoy. What really happened, or what they were really being watched for, was what happened after. 
So they filled out the paperwork and they handed it in, the quiz, and they handed it in. And the, the scientist said, oh, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate your help. Um, you can, you're done now. You can leave. The door is actually at the end of the hallway. Take a left and uh, you're on your way. So they're like, all right, thanks. So they start walking down the hallway. Now, at that time, an actor who was in on the study was standing in the middle of the narrow hallway. And there's a filing cabinet there. And the actor intentionally opens the filing cabinet and gets in the way of the person trying to walk by. And they bump into each other intentionally, right? The actor's all in on this. So they bump into each other, they get in the way, and then the guy sneaks by, and the actor would mumble under his breath, blank hole. For our sake of conversation here, we'll just go with butthead. But you know what I'm talking about here. That's when the scientist observed what happened. After the actor called the guy butthead, how did the person react? So the Yankees, the Northerners, laughed it off. And they kept walking. But the Southerners got angry. And the scientists afterwards, they took saliva samples and they tested cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and testosterone levels. In the Yankees, cortisol and testosterone went down. As if the body was saying, hey, relax, it's okay, brush it off. But in the Southerners, cortisol and testosterone levels went up through the roof. Then they sent people down a different hallway and they set up a game of chicken. So they got this guy, he's an actor again, six foot three, 250 pounds, he's a linebacker, huge guy. And they had him walk down the hallway, just barrel down the hallway as if he was late to something. And what they did is they watched the Southerners or Yankees and measured how long it was until they got out of this guy's way. Does that make sense? So this guy's barreling down the hallway. How long is it going to take until they get out of his way? It was a game of chicken. The results are hilarious. So for the Northerners, whether they were insulted previously or not, they would get out of the way of this person about five or six feet before they were to collide. If the Southerner was not insulted then they would get out of the way nine feet in front of the person. Very polite, right? They're like, oh, my goodness gracious, this guy's coming at me. He looks like he's got somewhere to go. I'm just going to get out of the way let him pass like a gentleman. But if that Southerner was insulted a couple minutes prior, they would walk right towards this barreling linebacker and get out of the way only two feet away. They played chicken right until the end. So the question is, why? What's going on here? What are the forces at play? And I want to take an early break, and I'll come back and I'll explain in full the next segment. But this is the key to this whole story, and I think it'll start to, start to make sense um, even when I read this sentence here. Malcolm Gladwell says, cultural legacies are powerful forces. They have deep roots and long lives. They persist generation after generation, virtually intact even as the economic and social and demographic conditions that spawned them have vanished. Cultural legacies are powerful forces. This is such an important thing to keep in mind as we have a conversation about immigration and assimilation. Cultural legacies are powerful forces. So why are... Why do Northerners act one way and Southerners act another? 
How can they be so different? And so different even though all of these students, whether they're from the north or the south, are college students at the University of Michigan in the Midwest. Right? There's no big difference like economically or anything else between northerners and southerners today. Now, maybe back in you know, 1800s, there'd be a, you know, a difference manufacturing up north and farming in the south, but th- those don't exist today. There's no economic big differences today that would uh, relate to such a difference. That, that, right? So what's going on? It's because cultural legacies are powerful forces. I want to take an early break. We'll bring this all home coming up next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Right, so we're talking about why Southerners are quicker to fight. Or that's how it seems. And the answer is because people in the South have an honor culture. People are quick to rise when their honor or reputation has been accosted. Even today, crime rates are higher in the South, but only certain types of crime. Crimes that are random, like carjacking or mugging, are lower in the South. But crimes against someone you know... Right. Crime, crimes against, you know, someone who cheated on your wife or someone who insulted your family somehow. Those are the ones that are higher. Now, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the Hatfields and McCoys, right? Hatfields and McCoys, family feud along the border of Kentucky and Virginia, West Virginia in the late 1800s. It wasn't just them, though. There was the French Eversol feud, the Martin Tolliver feud, the Baker Howard feud. There are all these family feuds. Why? Why did that happen then? And why does that still linger today? And by today, right, the last segment, still, when you insult a Southerner, their cortisol and testosterone levels increase. They get in fight mode. Why? How can this still be true today? Here's Malcolm Gladwell's argument. He says Southerners and Northerners are different even today because of the kinds of people who immigrated there hundreds of years ago. The people who settled the northern parts of our country were from farming areas of Europe. And the people who settled the southern states were uh, herdsmen of Europe. And you think, well, okay, what's the difference there? When you're a farmer, no one's going to steal your crops. So it's all about cooperation. When you're herding sheep, people can steal them. So for a herdsman, you're under constant threat of someone stealing from you. So your reputation and your strength and your willingness to fight and protect what's yours is your greatest protection. There's no police force. I mean, nothing you know substantial back then. So you have to be strong and have a strong reputation and a strong honor in order to keep your livelihood going, much more so than a farmer would. So the people who settled the South were the Scotch-Irish. These are people from the lowlands of Scotland, uh, the northern counties of England, northern parts of uh, and, and parts of Northern Ireland, uh, the borderlands. The borderlands are rocky, uh, terrible for farming, great for herding animals. So they left their remote what 1600s. They left their remote, lawless areas in Europe and settled in remote, lawless, infertile places in America. 
and they kept their culture with them. So the argument is from Malcolm Gladwell that people in the South grew up in a culture created hundreds of years ago by people who came from Europe, which had its own culture created over thousands of years. And we can still see those differences today, even though those original conditions no longer apply. Like, I don't grow up on a farm. Like, I didn't grow up on a farm, and my brother-in-law didn't grow up herding sheep in the mountains of Chattanooga. But still, we show those attributes as if we did. We were walking on the boardwalk a year or so ago, and um, him and I and uh, my wife's brother, and um, a couple of guys walked by and said something. I don't even remember. And I didn't even pay attention to it. Right? And uh, he's like, what'd you say to me? You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. <laughs> what'd you say to me? You want to say it to my face? Like that whole thing. I'm like, and he's like, well, why does he act like that? Honor culture. That's how he grew up. But it's not even it's how he grew up. It's how the Scotch-Irish, people from, from, from Ireland thousands of years ago <laughs> grew up. And their ancestors immigrated here. And that's the environment that he was grown up in. Very different than what I grew up with. Isn't that crazy? So Malcolm Gladwell, who's brilliant and not a conservative by any means, he says, if you want to understand what happens or what happened in those small towns in Kentucky, the Hatfields and McCoys, in the 19th century, you have to go back into the past and not just one or two generations. You got to go back two, three, four hundred years to a country on the other side of the ocean. The culture of honor hypothesis says that it matters not where you're from, or excuse me, it matters where you're from, not just in terms of where you grew up or where your parents grew up, but in terms of where your great, great, great grandparents grew up. And he calls these cultural legacies. Now, he left it there. He did not go into what this means for immigration today, but I think it's worth thinking about how we can apply these same principles to immigration today. If we today are defined by our Scotch-Irish settlers in the South or British settlers in, in the North of America today, <laughs> if we're still defined by that, as time goes on, how different are Americans going to be as people come from completely different cultures I mean, it's one thing to have people come from different parts of Europe, but people are coming in from South and Central America. And how, what are those cultural legacies going to be? I'm not saying bad. I'm not saying bad. I, I'm going to leave the judgment up to you, but it has to be considered. What does it mean for bringing immigrants from Asia? Again, not necessarily bad. Maybe good, maybe better. I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying it has to be considered. How about people coming from the Middle East? Cultural legacies can last for generations. And the only way to make this work is to absolutely declare that assimilation is a virtue. We need common goals, uniting forces, rites of passage, uniting holidays and American experiences. I think other cultures coming to America can make us stronger, but it needs to be tempered with uniting forces. Cultural legacies. Something to think about. Slater Radio on Twitter. If you like us on Facebook, you can watch our 90-minute interview we did with Donald Trump on Thursday. Just search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.